0: Hello, my name is Wang Yan, and I am a reporter with News China. With our weekly News China podcast, we aim to give insight into the trends and happenings in modern China through a historical lens. Today, we discuss China's Asian maritime trade. On November 15, 2020, Fifteen Asian-Pacific countries signed an agreement to build the world's largest trade bloc, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. The members include the 10 nations that make up the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, or ASEAN, as well as China, Japan, South Korea, Australia, and New Zealand. The RCEP will significantly boost the region's future growth prospects, And contribute positively to the global economy while serving as a supporting pillar to a strong multilateral trading system and promoting development in economies across the region," says the joint statement of the leaders of 15 countries. Chinese Premier Li Keqiang described the signing of the agreement as a victory of multilateralism and free trade. On December 30, China and the European Union declared that the two sides had completed negotiations on the bilateral investment treaty as scheduled. For most of time since the establishment of the Ming dynasty in the second half of the 14th century till the early 1980s, trading with the rest of the world was banned or restricted in China. By contrast, right before Ming's closed-door policy, China had already been involved in an enormous maritime trade for hundreds of years and before it explored trade on the sea, its trade with Europe via West Asia and the Arabian Peninsula on the Silk Road had been going on for hundreds of years. What is known as the Silk Road today began to connect China and Europe through trade during the reign of Emperor Wu. Of the Western Han Dynasty in the 2nd century BCE. Merchants in West Asia, Persia, India and the Arabian Peninsula did business with their Chinese partners till the decline of the Tang Dynasty in the late 8th century. The journey across deserts was long and arduous. Traders had to choose a product which could be kept intact throughout the journey and profitable enough to be worth the hardship. Silk is resistant to dry, cold and hot weather. It is light, so camels can carry as much as possible. It was incredibly profitable. When it reached West Asia, it became as valuable as gold. One can imagine how expensive it was by the time it reached Europe. In a palace built by Emperor Wu, There were lions from Africa and strong horses from Central Asia. A lot of foodstuffs were introduced into China, such as nuts and grapes through the Silk Road. Buddhism came to China this way. In the year 68 during the Eastern Han Dynasty, China's first Buddhist temple, the White Horse Temple, was built in what today is the city of Luoyang in Henan province. Tourists today can visit the original site of the temple, which was rebuilt during the last three imperial dynasties, the Yuan, Ming, and Qing. But the Silk Road was also fragile. Its decline began in the mid-8th century after a rebellion by An Lushan, a general of the Tang dynasty, nearly devastated the Tang, the most powerful and open dynasty in China's history. China plunged into chaos until the northern Song unified the country again nearly 200 years after the end of the rebellion. In the meantime, Arabic merchants, who were middlemen for the Silk Road trade, were more interested in expanding the more convenient maritime trade routes in the Persian Gulf and the Red Sea. As a result, China's foreign trade shifted to the sea. According to research by Joseph Needham, a British scientist and historian of science who published volumes of books on China in the latter half of the 20th century, China had a highly developed shipbuilding industry during the Tang dynasty. Today's Guangzhou, now capital of South China's Guangdong province, was the biggest port at that time. More than 4,000 ships docked there every year. A ship can carry hundreds of travelers the largest one, the Mulan, could accommodate more than 1,000 on board. The Tang dynasty appointed a department in Guangzhou to manage the foreign trade there. The major trading partners were Southeast Asia, particularly Malaysia, Indonesia, Sri Lanka, and India. China imported spices, which were used for cooking, skin care, smell removal, preserving food, and even showing off wealth. Both Europeans and Chinese loved spices, but they were more expensive in Europe, which was much further away. By the end of the Tang dynasty in the late 9th century, China's foreign trade had nearly completely shifted from the land to the sea. About 120,000 foreign people lived in Guangzhou, including Persians, Arabs, Indians, and people from other regions although not all were recorded. They volunteered for the Tang army to defend the city against the peasant uprising force led by Huang Chao. They failed and were slaughtered by Huang Chao's army. The Tang dynasty fell soon. Arabic business people were the biggest business group in the world's maritime trade during this period. The Arabian Peninsula stands at the midpoint between Asia and Europe, giving them an advantage in transportation both on land and sea. They explored nearly all the islands scattered on the Indo Pacific Oceans in their religious missionary ventures. In this process, they learned what spices could be found on which island. This information was secret to outsiders. 53 years after the Tang collapsed, the Northern Song was founded, but its territory on land was much smaller than the Tang. Regimes of ethnic minority groups controlled today's north and northwest in China. They had conflicts with the Song. The Silk Road on the land remained blocked. The Northern Song had no choice but to continue to develop the maritime trade. In addition, during the Northern Song, sea voyages became much safer and efficient by the adoption of a compass for navigation which had been only used for geomancy for a long time in China In the 12th century, the Song was driven to the south of China by the Jin Kingdom one of the regimes set up by Nujin ethnic group in the north of China the ancestors of the Manchu the southern Song was established Although it was a smaller, weaker dynasty than the Tang or Northern Song, it was the richest dynasty in China's history. It ruled the Yangtze River and Pearl River areas, the most prosperous regions in China. Maritime trade reached its peak in this period, contributing a lot to the prosperity of the dynasty. Both before and after the Southern Song dynasty, China's foreign trade was dominated by imperial governments. The government decided the price for an imported product. Very often, the price was very high for political reasons. The purpose was to keep close ties with tributary states or other smaller states. Exports were subject to a quota system. Tributary or smaller states with good relations got more high-quality silk, tea and porcelain. This is called tributary trade. Private foreign trade was restricted or even cracked down as illegal smuggling. Trade developed slowly during this policy. The Southern Song opened foreign trade to private business. Like in the Tang Dynasty, a government agency was set up in various ports to manage foreign trade. Some trade officials were foreigners. When imports arrived, Southern Song officials at the ports picked 10 to 20% of the imports for the tributary trade. The remainder was allowed to be traded freely on the market, although its quality was lower and it cost more than official imports. The imperial franchise of foreign trade was reduced, and private business got the chance to grow. The main exports were still silk tea and porcelain. The main imports were still spices from the sea in Southeast Asia. Four ports developed quickly by providing services for the booming foreign trade during the Southern Song. Ningbo in Zhejiang province is the place where the Qiantang River connects with the sea. It still serves as a major port in China and is close to Hangzhou, which was capital of the Southern Song. Yangzhou, in today's Jiangsu province, was also a big port at the time. Ships can go straight into the port from the sea. But later, its route to the sea was blocked by sediment buildup. Yangzhou was no longer a port. The world's largest port during the southern Song was Quanzhou, in today's Fujian province in China's southeast coast. Foreign trade made the port city so prosperous that some royal families of the Southern Song even moved there. They expanded from about 300 members to more than 3,000 at the end of the Southern Song. They enjoyed imported luxuries and massive wealth. In late 13th century, the Southern Song was driven by the Mongol army further to the south and faced its final fall. Some officials planned to adopt Quanzhou as the new capital from where the dynasty could rise again Even if the city was conquered they could maintain the regime in exile on the sea by using the wealth and ships in Quanzhou However, the southern Song army was completely devastated by the Mongol army in Yashan, in today's Guangdong province One of its senior officials, Lu Fu, carried the 8-year-old emperor on his back and jumped into the sea. More than 100,000 Song soldiers and officials also committed suicide in the same way. The Southern Song ended. The Yuan dynasty began. But why didn't Quanzhou become the last resort of the Southern Song? It was because of a foreign businessman in Quanzhou who was the port city's highest official and one of the biggest trader and richest person of the Southern Song. He refused to let the Southern Song army into the city. He surrendered to the Mongol army. Our next podcast will be about this person, Pu Shougeng. This was a serious lesson that the Ming dynasty after the Yuan learned from the fall of the Southern Song. Zhu Yuanzhang, founder of the Ming, no longer trusted maritime traders especially those with foreign origins. They were regarded as a powerful but uncontrollable erratic political force purely driven by changing commercial interests. In addition, the imperial governments did not think there was anything in the world worth a long, hard maritime venture for Chinese. The Ming banned maritime trade, though there was a short period of limited openness in the late 16th century. In the 28 years after 4005, Ming emperor set a giant fleet led by Zheng He on seven global voyages. The maritime venture brought them to the east coast of Africa at the furthest point. But the purpose was mainly political, not economic. Historians believed one of Zheng's missions was to find Emperor Jianwen, who disappeared after losing the war with his uncle in competition for throne. Another mission was to show the rest of the world how powerful and wealthy the dynasty to attract more tributary states. The Qing dynasty continued the policy, but the rest of the world had already changed a lot. 87 years after Zheng started his first trip, Christopher Columbus sailed on his transatlantic expedition. The closed-off China missed development chances brought about by the age of discovery that as a result lagged far behind. The next time it opened up, it was by force in 1840 at a British gunpoint. That is end of our podcast. Thank you to our writer Song Yimin. Editor and translator Li Jia and copy editor Kathleen Nade. We hope you enjoyed it and thank you for listening. See you next week.